The Zygarnik Effect The discovery began, according to the legend among psychologists, with a lunch in the mid-1920s near the University of Berlin. A large group from the university went to a restaurant and placed their orders with a single waiter who didn't bother writing anything down. He simply nodded. Yet he served everyone's food correctly, a feat of memory that impressed the group. They finished eating and left the restaurant, whereupon one person, the legend is unclear on exactly who, returned to retrieve an item that he had left behind. The person spotted the waiter and asked for help, hoping to benefit from his obviously excellent memory. But the waiter looked back blankly. He had no idea who the patron was, much less where the person had sat. When asked how he could have forgotten everything so quickly, the waiter explained that he remembered each order only until it was served. One of the scholars, a young Russian psychology student named Bluma Zagarnik, and her mentor, the influential thinker Kurt Levin, pondered this experience and wondered if it pointed to a more general principle. Did the human memory make a strong distinction between finished and unfinished tasks? They began observing people who were interrupted while doing jigsaw puzzles. This research, and many studies in the following decades, confirmed what became known as the Zygarnik effect. Uncompleted tasks and unmet goals tend to pop into one's mind. Once the task is completed and the goal reached, however, the stream of reminders comes to a stop. A good way to appreciate the Zygarnik effect is to listen to a randomly chosen song and shut it off halfway through. The song is then likely to run through your mind on its own at odd intervals. If you get to the end of the song, the mind checks it off, so to speak. If you stop it in the middle, however, the mind treats the song as unfinished business. As if to keep reminding you that there is a job to be done, the mind keeps inserting bits of the song into your stream of thought. That's why when Bill Murray in Groundhog Day keeps shutting off I Got You Babe on his clock radio, the tune keeps going through our minds and keeps driving him crazy. And that's why this kind of earworm is so often an awful tune rather than a pleasant one. We're more likely to turn off the bad one in mid-song, so it's the one that returns to haunt us. Why would the mind inflict I Got You Babe on itself? Psychologists have generally assumed that earworms are an unfortunate byproduct of an otherwise useful function, the completion of tasks. How the Zygarnik effect works has been explained by various theories over the years, including two rival hypotheses that dominated the debate. One hypothesis was that the unconscious mind is keeping track of your goals and working to make sure they're accomplished, so these stray conscious thoughts are actually a reassuring sign that your unconscious will stay on the case until the job is done. The rival hypothesis was that the unconscious mind is seeking help from the conscious mind. Like a small child tugging at the sleeve of an adult to get attention and help, the unconscious mind is telling the conscious mind to finish the task. But now there's a newer and better explanation for the Zygarnik effect, thanks to some recent experiments conducted by E.J. Masacampo, a graduate student at Florida State working with Baumeister. In one study, he assigned some students to think about their most important final examination. Others, in a control condition, thought about the most important party pending on their social calendar. Among the ones who thought about the exam, Half were also told to make specific plans of what, where, and when they would study. 
but nobody did any actual studying during the experiment. Then everyone performed a task that contained a subtle measure of the zygarnic effect. They were given word fragments and instructed to complete them. The fragments were artfully constructed so that they could be completed with words relevant to studying, but also with alternative, irrelevant words. For instance, the item R-E blank blank could be completed as read, but also could be made into real, rest, reap, and reek. Likewise, EX blank blank could be completed as exam, but also as exit. If thoughts of the unfulfilled task of studying for the exam were on the person's mind, he or she would be expected to generate more exam-related words due to the zygarnic effect. And indeed, Masukampo found that these words popped more often into the minds of some people, the ones who had been reminded of the exam, but hadn't made plans to study for it. But no such effect was observed among the students who'd made a study plan. Even though they, too, had been reminded of the exam, their minds had apparently been cleared by the act of writing down a plan. In another experiment, participants were asked to reflect on important projects in their lives. Some were told to write about some tasks they had recently completed. Others were told to write about tasks that were unfulfilled and needed to be done soon. A third group was also told to write about unfulfilled tasks, but also to make specific plans for how they would get these done. Then everyone went on to what they were told was a separate and unrelated experiment. They were assigned to read the first ten pages of a novel. As they read, they were checked periodically to ascertain whether their minds were wandering from the novel. Afterward, they were asked how well they had focused and where, if anywhere, their minds had wandered. They also were tested on how well they understood what they'd read. Once again, making a plan made a difference. Those who'd written about unfulfilled tasks had more trouble keeping their minds focused on the novel, unless they'd made a specific plan to complete the task, in which case they reported relatively little mind-wandering and scored quite well on the reading comprehension test. Even though they hadn't finished the task or made any palpable progress, the simple act of making a plan had cleared their minds and eliminated the zygarnic effect. But the zygarnic effect remained for the students without a plan. Their thoughts wandered from the novel to their undone tasks, and afterward they scored worse on the comprehension test. So it turns out that the zygarnic effect is not, as was assumed for decades, a reminder that continues unabated until the task gets done. The persistence of distracting thoughts is not an indication that the unconscious is working to finish the task, nor is it the unconscious nagging the conscious mind to finish the task right away. Instead, the unconscious is asking the conscious mind to make a plan. The unconscious mind apparently can't do this on its own, so it nags the conscious mind to make a plan with specifics like time, place, and opportunity. Once the plan is formed, the unconscious can stop nagging the conscious mind with reminders. That's how Allen's system deals with the problem that he calls monkey mind. If, like his typical client, you've got at least 150 items on your to-do list, the zygarnic effect could leave you leaping from task to task, and it won't be sedated by vague, good intentions. If you've got a memo that has to be read before a meeting Thursday morning, the unconscious wants to know exactly what needs to be done next 
and under what circumstances. But once you make that plan, once you put the meeting memo in the tickler file for Wednesday, once you specify the very next action to be taken on the project, you can relax. You don't have to finish the job right away. You've still got 150 things on the to-do list. But for the moment, the monkey is still and the water is calm. Zero Euphoria Upon arriving at Drew Carey's office, David Allen began where he always begins, the collection of stuff. This is a broadly encompassing term. Stuff, as defined in Getting Things Done, is anything you have allowed into your psychological or physical world that doesn't belong where it is, but for which you haven't yet determined the desired outcome and the next action step. Or, as Carrie defined it, all the crap in his office. Then came the second phase of the GTD system, the processing of the stuff, when Carrie had to decide whether to do it, delegate it, defer it, or drop it. If something didn't require action, it could be either thrown out or filed away for future reference. Stuff requiring action that was part of a multi-step project, like Carrie's preparations to emcee a charity benefit dinner honoring Archbishop Desmond Tutu, had to be grouped together in a project list or in a folder on the computer or in a file cabinet. By going through all the paperwork, all the unanswered emails, all the other unfinished tasks in his computer or on his mind, Carey identified dozens of personal and business projects, which was typical. Allen's clients usually had between 30 and 100 projects, each with at least a couple of tasks, and they spend a full day or two to complete the great initial purging and sorting and processing. After Carey identified the projects, he had to single out the specific next action for each project. What was the very next thing to do for the charity dinner? As Carey worked through all the stuff, Alan sat in his office all day long. He'd honestly sit there and watch me do my emails, Carey says. Whenever I'd get stuck, He'd say, what's going on? And I'd tell him, and he'd go, do this. And I would do it. He was very decisive about it. There would be only a few times when he'd say, it could be a this or a that. What are you going to do with it? Alan taught him to set up separate folders for phone calls and emails, to put vague projects in a someday maybe folder, and to follow the two-minute rule. If something will take less than two minutes, don't put it on a list get it out of the way immediately. Before, I'd see a pile of papers and wouldn't know what the hell was in them and just be like, oh my God, Carrie says. The day I got to zero, which is GTD talk for having nothing in your inbox, no phone messages, no emails, nothing, not a piece of paper. When I got to that point, I felt like the world got lifted off my shoulders. I felt like I had just come out of meditating in the desert, not a care in the world. I just felt euphoric. Since that day, with the help of monthly visits from Alan, Carey says he has kept fairly close to zero. He falters sometimes, and if he's been traveling, stuff will build up, but at least he knows what's there and feels sure he'll get to it. He can read a book or take a yoga class without feeling guilty. With the mundane out of the way, he can focus on the important stuff, like writing comedy. 
There's nothing worse than sitting down to write when you've got a blinking phone and a pile of letters and a ton of emails in your face, Carrie says. You're not going to do your very best work, but if you know the other stuff is taken care of, you can concentrate on your writing. You can be more creative. Ultimately, that's the selling point of GTD in corporate offices and far beyond. That's the reason that comedians and artists and rock musicians rhapsodize about Allen's lists and folders. Whether you're trying to garden or take a picture or write a book, Allen says, your ability to make a creative mess is your most productive state. You want to be able to throw ideas all over the place, but you need to be able to start with a clear deck. One mess at a time is all you can handle. Two messes at a time, you're screwed. You may want to find God, but if you're running low on cat food, you damn well better make a plan for dealing with it. Otherwise, the cat food is going to take a whole lot more attention and keep you from finding God. But why is it so hard to put cat food on a list? Why, even after paying Alan's $20,000 a day fee to sit by their side, do his corporate clients still look for any excuse to flee from the stuff on their desks? He sometimes has to hunt them down in the men's room and drag them back. After watching so many clients agonize over the most trivial decisions and next actions, Alan has come to appreciate why decide has the same etymological root as homicide, the Latin word cadere, meaning to cut down or to kill. When we're trying to decide what to do with our stuff or what movie to see, Alan says, we don't think to ourselves, Look at all these cool choices. There's a powerful thing inside that says, if I decide to do that movie, I kill all the other movies. You can pretend all the way up to that point that you know the right thing to do, but once you're faced with the choice, you have to deal with this open loop in your head. You're wrong, you're right, you're wrong, you're right. Every single time you make a choice, you're stepping into an existential void. An existential void is not, ordinarily, very easy for psychologists to observe in the lab. But when people spend a lot of time in that void, the consequences can start to show up in ways that are easier to measure. A person might, as we shall see, start behaving like Elliot Spitzer. <laughs>